First Thessalonians chapter 4. Before I, I jump into this text, uh, as I was studying, it, it kind of reminded me of something. A um, little fun fact about me. I love learning how companies get started and like the backstory of, of where you know, the, the founder got the idea and, and what steps he took to get it to uh, the place of being a successful business or sometimes an unsuccessful business. Um, and as I was reading and studying and thinking about our passage this morning and doing the background work, it reminded me of a talk I heard um, from the founder of a company. And if, if you can, imagine for a second, for those of you who are old enough, uh, back to 2007, so this is before the 08 crash, right? Things are going good. And there's this uh, young industrial design major, and he gets a call from a college friend of his. He was working a job, and he didn't really like the job. And his friend said, hey, I've invented this product. I think you should move to San Francisco and work with me on getting this product up and going. And so he looked at his bank account, and he said, well, I have $1,000. Man, this is... If there's ever been a good time to go, I've saved up a thousand bucks. This is the time to go. So he fly, hops on a, uh, gets in his car, drives over to San Francisco, and he gets there. And as soon as he gets there, his friend says, "Okay, first thing you need to know: the cheapest rent you're going to find is eleven hundred dollars." And you're thinking, "Man, I should have asked a few more questions, right? Like this is this is going to be a lot more expensive than I thought." But you're a problem solver, and you realize. There's a, a big industrial design conference coming up this weekend. And you hear that every hotel in San Francisco is booked. And so you think, I got a way to pay my rent. So you go and get some air mattresses. You throw them out in your apartment. You build a little website real quick. And you let the world know, hey, if you're coming to this design conference and you don't have a hotel, here's a place you can come and stay. And all of a sudden, you got a business. And you're doing so well because there's always a conference in San Francisco, right? There's, there's always something happening. And you decide to turn this happy accident into a full-time business. But the one problem you need is you need some capital to get up and going. And so you start having meetings with investors. And you go through dozens of different investors trying to get just like $150,000 of seed money to get this business really up and going and off the ground but there's a problem each one of them tells the founder there is no way that you're going to get strangers to sleep in strangers houses this is just not going to work I, I, they can't imagine people traveling through town wanting to sleep with some stranger in their house that they don't know. But Brian, he's a hardworking guy and he doesn't give up because he really thinks he's on to something. And finally, in 2009, he convinces one investor to give him the money that he needs. And fast forward to today, Airbnb last year had revenues of $8.4 billion dollars. And as of last week, the company is worth $75 billion. Now, you may be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12? And I will get to that, I promise. Because 
we're going to see that there is really nothing new under the sun. And what was an innovative idea in Silicon Valley is something Christians have been doing for centuries. Paul has kind of been showing us here in this section of scripture in the first part of chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. I told you this was kind of a two-part message. And last week, Paul has shown us how not to relate to our brothers and sisters, right? He's talked about some ways in which we uh, hurt and offend one another, specifically in sexual ways. This week, Paul is going to continue by showing us how we are to relate to one another in verses 9 through 12. So let's read the text together. It's just four verses this morning and no bad jokes. All right. Verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, if you would read it with me, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All right. For those of you who are taking notes, I'm going to break this scripture down into just two points. The first point is we are to love one another like family. Love one another like family. Point number two, I'm going to say it in the polite way, be quiet and work hard. Okay? Be quiet and work hard. In verse nine, we see this idea that we are to love one another like family. And Paul is exhorting them not to brotherly love in general, but rather to love of their Christian brothers and sisters specifically the term philadelphia that's used there originally referred to love of one's physical siblings right this is this is the love of family this is not the love of acquaintances and the love of friends we have different words for that paul is very particular when he picks this word early christians such as him would would use this of fellow believers right brothers and sisters that's that's not just something corny we say to one another Right? That, that is an idea and a concept of we are the family of God. That, that we have been grafted together into this new family. And, and the beautiful thing about that is sometimes life deals you a bad deck when it comes to family. And God is so gracious in his love and his care for people to provide a second family. A, a better family, hopefully. One, one that's going to love you like a brother and sister in Christ. And don't get me wrong, because of sin and fallenness, that's been, there's been mistreatment and abuse even within that family. But when it's working the way God has intended it to work, we will look toward one another's needs higher than our own. We will care for one another. You know, when, when someone calls you and says, hey, I need some help, right? Like, I need some help moving, Let's make it real here. I need some help moving. And it's just an acquaintance. All, yeah, I, I got something going. I'm sorry. I got a scheduling conflict. I got to work. If I don't, I'm going to get to work, you know. Right? But when it's your brother or your sister, when it's your family, 
It, it's different. And, and so Paul is kind of getting the, the believers here at Thessalonica to, to be reminded that we are to love one another the way families love one another. It means we, we set a little bit higher priority for them over just everyone. Well, Paul is saying all of these people who are part of this church are now family. This is an example of ancient inclusive language. Meaning that it applied to brotherly and sisterly love. This was not a, a male-focused word. This was a all-inclusive, brothers and sisters. And, and again, it's, it's interesting that Paul deliberately chose not to use the friendship language. Instead, he uses the family language because he's encouraging Christians to not, not merely treat them as friends, but rather in a more intimate way as the family of God. The church assumed the function of the family. Even, even we see this in the place of meeting, right? They, they were meeting where? And, and this served to reinforce the reality of Christians becoming members of the same brotherhood and sisterhood. This is one of the main reasons why we do small groups the way we do. We, we want to instill that sense of family and that, that every small group is a, a little family that's caring for one another. And it's so encouraging to me as, as your pastor to see all of these different small groups working and serving one another. And I never get a call. I never get asked. And, and, and I just see or I hear, oh, hey, we did this. Really? Yeah, well, you know, we had five people from our small group show up. It was no problem. We took care of it. It's just a blessing to me that, that I'm hardly ever the first person in a hospital visit. Because for those who are in small groups, normally the small group, someone there has beat me to the hospital when there's a visit. Like, it's just, it blows my mind to think about. That's, that's so opposite of the way it works in so many other churches. Where, where the pastor is expected to go and do everything and be the be-all for everyone. But instead we have these little spiritual families who for the most part are caring for one another. Taking care of each other. And, and it's a beautiful thing. And, and only when issues arise and they go, you know what, we can't handle this, we need some help, then they call us in. And we're happy to be there. We, we, we love to serve and do whatever we can do. But that just allows us to love and serve more little families if we're not constantly having to care for every single person in the church. And that's what Paul has pictured here. There, there are these little house churches, right? We, we have a Western view of the way church is, which is we come to a big building, we all get together, we all sing some songs. But that's not what was happening here. There, there were little pockets of families meeting, little Christian families meeting in homes all across the city. And Paul is addressing all of them, saying you all are the family of God. Notice, though, that Paul says the, the church excelled at this already, right? He, he's telling the, the church, you, you guys are, are doing this. I, I don't have to talk to you about this. Like, you guys are already doing it. And again, this is one of those things. I, I, it's, it's interesting when you kind of work backwards into what Paul is saying. And I told you in the very first message in this series that I'd love to know exactly what Paul taught this young church in just a couple weeks to make it so successful, right? Well, one of the things that he taught that we looked at a couple weeks ago is that we're going to suffer. We should expect suffering. 
Don't be surprised by that, but expect it, right? Something else we see that Paul has taught here is about brotherly love. He's like, I've, we've already talked about this. You already know about this. You're already doing this. Loving one another was a core principle of what Paul taught this church. And it's what's made this church as successful and last with only a couple of weeks of instruction the way it has. But he gives two reasons here that they are excelling. He doesn't just say, oh, you're doing a good job of this. He gives two reasons why they're doing a good job. First, because they were taught by God or they were God taught in the way the original reads. And this is an interesting phrase that's first used here. And the idea connects really to several ideas from Scripture. This language seems to be like a hyperlink back to Isaiah 54, 13, where it says, all your sons will be taught by God. We also see this in Paul's teaching, such as love belongs to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22. It is the effect of the Spirit's pouring out the love of God into the hearts of believers. So there's this connection here with this idea that, that God is going to be directly teaching his children. And Paul is saying, you, you guys are getting it. You're, you're getting You're God taught. God is showing you how to love one another. And socially, this, this encouragement was needed since this Christian community, when you stop and think about it, it was composed of all different kinds of people, right? And, and they're coming from various social backgrounds and statuses who who may not necessarily be inclined to love one another. Especially call one another brothers and sisters. The, the culture in which they grew up, the, the homes that some of them grew up in, they, they were taught to look down on certain people. And, and Paul is encouraging them, saying, listen, we, we are coming together. You, are, you guys are doing You're knocking it out of the park. You are loving one another because God has taught you how to do this. Second, the second reason is because of their hospitality. We see this when he talks about uh, the love that, that, that is known to Macedonia. Presumably, he's referring to their hospitality toward traveling Christians from elsewhere. Again, we talked about the positioning of this city, and it was kind of a crossroads. And lots of people had to come in and out of the city making trades to different parts of the region. And so Paul is, is referring here that the, the word is getting out of how hospitable you are. You're, you're opening up your houses not just for worship, not just for Bible study and church, but, but to those who are fellow Christians who are traveling through the city and who need a place to stay. And, and they're being encouraged by your faith. So much so that they're telling other people in other cities about you. Perhaps he's also talking about their aid to Christians in other cities. Paul was really big about creating support networks where churches just didn't see themselves as these little individual islands. And it's like, well, you got to take care of yourself and we'll take care of ourselves. No, they were constantly giving and helping other believers who were like in Jerusalem, who were struggling and being persecuted. And so he would take up an offering from one and take it back to them so that they would be able to survive. Paul's drawing attention to how they physically and financially came to the aid of fellow Christians, right? This isn't just, I love you, I'll pray for you. 
right? Thoughts and prayers, right? It's not that. It's they're actually doing something. Their, their love is manifest in the way in which they live their lives. Now, Brian from Airbnb, he took the concept of the Thessalonian church. that, that They would have been well-versed. If, if they would have been the investors he was pitching in, he'd be like, man, we're doing this all the time. We, we have strangers coming to our houses all the time, but we don't charge any money for it. He just monetized what the church was doing for thousands of years. Caring for one another. And listen, still to this day, I don't know if you realize this, but a lot of the times when I travel, I don't stay in hotels. I have friends and, and different church members from the past that live in different cities and different areas and a lot of times we'll work our trips around. Every, every time I went to Southern Seminary, I would stay in different friends' houses on the way up there. This is still happening to today. I know it's kind of foreign to us. We are very individualistic in America and we're going to you know, get our own hotel room and pay our own way and do all this stuff. But this is still very much alive in most of the world, even here in America. People opening up their houses and showing hospitality. Showing that brotherly love to one another. Like Ecclesiastes says, there really is nothing new under the sun. Notice that Paul thought that they were, they, they've done well, but he doesn't want them to stop. Right? In other words, it's not like, okay, boy, we can, we can sit back now. We can rest. Paul has told us we are doing a good job. We can take a break. Right? No, he, he's... He's encouraging them to keep growing in this love. You see that at the verse of at the end of verse 10. Guys, Christians should Christians love should never become complacent. As though they've reached this certain level of love that's sufficient to please God. We we are to continue to be pushing that boundary. Going harder after loving one another like a family. So that's the first thing. Love one another like a family. The second thing Paul apparently taught them, we see in verses 11 through 12. And that's be quiet and work hard. Be quiet and work hard. Paul's addressed the Thessalonian Christians on their relationships among themselves in verse 9. He turns now to speak to how they are to relate to outsiders in verses 11 and 12. And the advice basically is to live quietly, mind your own business, and work hard, even laboring with your hands. Now let's take the last part of that first, and then we'll work our way back in this verse. It's, it's important to see how this week's text ties back to verses 1 through 8 in the beginning section. Paul's trying to get them to understand that some ways of acting are incompatible with brotherly love. In verses 1 through 8, he gives us the first example. Sexual invasion of another person's um, future or present household is not conducive to brotherly love. So in other words, when, whenever we're, you know, they're sleeping around, having affairs, doing all this different stuff, they're, they're either affecting a, a current household or a future household. And, and Paul says that that's just not becoming a brotherly love. In our verses, we find another reason. You see, when disciples 
are having all things in common and, and they're caring for one another, it's not showing brotherly love when you neglect your ability to work and then become a financial burden on others. These churches were, were groups of people who were all pitching in and caring for one another, making sure that no need went unmet. But when you have the ability to work and you don't work, you show up week in and week out with your hand out, Paul says that, that's not brotherly love. That, that's not showing and expressing brotherly love. Brotherly love sets up Two-way relationships, not dependencies. And so whenever we find ourselves in those places where we can work, and again, Paul makes all kind of provisions for those who are widows and sick and disabled, and, and we're not talking about that, okay? We're talking about those who can work and who choose not to work. That the danger there is you're creating a dynamic of dependency. And listen, that affects relationships. And Paul is saying, if we're going to love one another, if we're going to show brotherly love, we've got to pull our weight. Now, not all of us can pull the same weight. That's okay. But as long as we're pulling our weight, that's showing brotherly love. And Paul here, he's not trying to get these Christians to take up some kind of stoic mindset that would have been popular at this time, but it's really popular in America, and that's one of self-sufficiency. I'll just do it myself. I'll just take care of myself. That's not what Paul is trying to do here. It's not what he's encouraging. Paul wants us to be God-dependent, mutually loving, and serving one another. It's also because of this love that, that we cannot stand by idly while the needy go hungry, right? This same brotherly love that is driving us to pull our weight, get up in the morning, go to work, get paid. And then to take some of that money and to be able to turn around and help those who can't help themselves. Working gives us the ability to fund ministry and missions and hospitality. Again, you, you can't invite somebody into a house you don't have. You, you can't entertain and care for a person with money you don't have. And, and Paul's saying if we're going to show brotherly love, a fundamental aspect. And, and I wonder sometimes if Paul is sitting here going, I can't believe I'm having to even write this. <laughs> like, get a job. Do, do what you're supposed to do. Don't just sit there and live off of one another. You need to work. Now let's go back to the first part of this verse because Paul says something really interesting. He says we are to aspire to live quietly, to mind our own, to mind your own affairs. Aspire to live quietly. That's a weird set of words. <laughs> Right? Because we aspire to greatness. We aspire to all kinds of things. But few of us aspire to live quietly. 
Paul's suggesting something that I think is very countercultural for our time. I think it was countercultural for that time as well, but it's definitely countercultural for the time in which we live. You see, back then it was normal to pursue kind of conventional forms of, of status seeking, trying to improve their, their honor rating in society. But Christians are not called to establish their names in the public sphere by seeking prestige or, or fame or fortune. They are to be ambitious in a different and perhaps counterintuitive way. A quiet way. Paul's talking about the avoidance of, of conflict and doing purposeful work and community building in this section. Christians were to strive within for the community. One can think of a good reason for this, right? That Paul would be writing to this, writing this to them because Paul was ran out of town because Christians were being persecuted, right? And, and Paul is writing knowing that they're living in this context of being persecuted. And the lower profile they maintain, the better it might go for them. He's dealing with the social factors and forces, not least of which is trying to help his Christians survive in a hostile environment. We also see hints here, and we'll see later in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9 when we get there. Paul seems to be setting an example of avoiding entangling alliances with patrons. They were to be quietly busy, but not busy bodies. Which is to say, not living on the, the dime of some patron and then spending their time spreading that patron's name and seeking to win friends and influence people for their patrons. See, that, that was kind of a system in the way in which people would make a living. They, they would work for this person who was their patron and they would go around and run around and and talk to all of these different people about how great their patron was. Right? And so their patron would pay them to do this. So that would elevate the patron's status. The more people he had running around talking about how great he was. Then the more he or she would move up in the social world. And Paul's telling the Christians. Well, you, you need to avoid this system. Instead work when you're able to work. And avoid being a burden to others. And earn money to do good for others. Not, not just to build wealth and prestige for yourself. But, but to turn around and, and to help others without any expectation of return. Love and doing good to all, especially, especially the household of faith. This was their guiding principle. Because Paul, he didn't want them beholden, especially... To non-Christian patrons. Right? Because then they might be put in that awful ethical situation of their patron asking them to do something that was unchristian, unethical. And, and they're looking going, you know what? My paycheck comes from this guy. I got to do it. And I just want to challenge you. We, we don't really live so much in that kind of world this, this, nowadays. But some of you need to evaluate where you work. Because where you work puts you in positions to have to do unethical things. And I would encourage you to pray and ask God 
to send you a new job. One in which you're not sitting there going, well, I know this is what God wants me to do, but I got to get paid on Friday. Now, all of this was particularly difficult for the church at Thessalonica. Because again, they were in a time of persecution. And, and many of them had cut their ties with pagan temples and, and the festivals. So how could they be a good example and a witness to outsiders when they could not socialize much with them? Right, Because a lot of their socialization in that world was around pagan ceremonies and festivals and sacrifices and meals. And, and now they're cut off from all of that. And many times they would receive hostile reactions if they did try to bear witness about the gospel. But Paul's answer is that they work hard. Live quietly. Avoid any kind of entangling alliances while building a positive Christian community known for its love and its caring for one another. Now, Paul is not really encouraging an introverted church here. right? He tells them to live quietly, not silently. But he is limiting the ways Christians should engage with the larger culture and he encourages them instead to focus during hostile times on building up their own community now when you think about the world in which we live in the persecution looks different I, I i can't think of the last time a pastor was run out of town in lake city right it, it looks different but but we are living in hostile times T times in which the gospel is not Widely accepted. And so I think in following Paul's model here, and an example for us, is it's all the more important for us to continue to build a strong community and family within our church. Because there are so many people that are beaten and bruised by our culture. And, and all of a sudden, they thought they were doing everything the way they were supposed to be doing, and culture changes the rules, and now they're canceled. And, and to find a place that is loving and accepting of them, encouraging of them, pointing them back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, can be like an oasis in a desert. And in the country in which we lived in, in now that is long since been a Christian nation. We, we need to have these oases all over the country for men and women to come to to find a refuge. But the last thing they need to do when they come through those doors is to find a bunch of people who hate one another and who are fighting with one another and who are slandering one another. And being busybodies and, and gossips and talking about one another. Because they walk in and go, well, well, this is just like where I came from. This is just like work. We, we need to be the family of God. We need to live quietly. We need to work hard.
caring for one another. Paul, I think, modeled this himself in the way in which he would work with his hands. Doing, I mean, tent making was hard work and it wasn't super profitable. And if he, if he would have just asked, churches would have supported him. But he wanted to show them an example. He wanted to be able to give to missions from his own pocket. Not from the church's pocket, but from his own pocket. And so he, he not only preached the example, but he tried to live the example for them. So why is this important today? Let me give you a couple reasons. One, non-Christians should never be given a reason for thinking that Christians are unprofitable members of society. Non-Christians should never be given a reason to think that Christians are unprofitable members of society. Those who are behaving in this way, they're not only burdensome to their fellow Christians, but they're incurring a bad reputation among non-Christians. And, and not only for themselves. See, the, the problem is, each and every one of us as believers, we represent the king. We are little images, little pictures of him. And so the way in which we live is not only a reflection on ourselves, but our faith as well. And, and you don't, we don't want non-believers going, if, if this is Christianity, then they're, they're just sitting around not doing anything. They're, they're just a bunch of idle busybodies. The idlers indeed were not only neglecting the things they ought to be doing, but they were also actively engaged in things they ought not to be doing. These believers that that Paul is challenging, it it wasn't just that they weren't working. That's half of it. But the other half is they were taking that time that they should have been working and they're running around doing things that they shouldn't have been doing. Being meddlesome in other people's business that they had no business being a part of. And there's a great difference between the Christian duty of putting the interest of others before one's own and the busybody's compulsive itch to put other people right. There's a great difference between the Christian duty of putting the interest of others before one's own and the busybody's compulsive itch to put other people right. The church could not do its ministry of gospel witness and reconciliation in the world unless its members adorned the gospel with their lives as well as proclaiming it with their lips. So many times our gospel presentation is cut short not because of what we say or how we say it but because of how we've lived in front of the person that we are saying it to. Second, 
God wills work as a way of building bridges for the gospel. Because in our work, usually, I know COVID's changed this a little bit, but like usually, if you have a job and you are working, you are dealing with the world. You are interacting with the public. You are rubbing shoulders with unbelievers. And you get an opportunity to share the good news of the gospel to everyone you come into contact with. And we meet Christians from other churches in our workplaces. Other little families of God. And we, we get to minister to them sometimes. And sometimes they get to minister to us. See, work opens up all kinds of opportunity for the gospel. By, by getting us out of ourselves and out into the world. Third, when we don't work, we tend to become self-focused. Not saying this is every single case, but I'm just saying I've lived a long time and I've spent time with a lot of people and the trend is when they stop working, they start becoming more self-focused. They, they start expecting other people to carry the load for them, right? They, they want to spend time on what pleases them the most. And they get really bothered when they don't get to do that. God wants each and every one of us to work. Now that work's going to look different for each and every one of us. And it's going to look different at different phases of our life. As I was putting this together, I, I was thinking about Patrick, who we had a couple of weeks ago speak at the church. And I encourage you, go on the website or listen in the app. Listen to his talk. He, he, he's in a wheelchair, but yet the man gets up every day and works. And he's found a way in which he can honor God by continuing to work. And God is using that. And a lot of times we give ourselves all these excuses of why we can't work. But in reality, every single person in this room can be working for God in some capacity. Not to make our names great, but to make his name great. You may never have thought about your work as holy before this morning. But one of the best things you can do for your spiritual growth is to see that there really is no such thing as holy and secular anymore. That there's no such thing as sacred and secular. I, gr I grew up with this idea, maybe you did too, right? That this is a holy space, right? But Sonny's, that's a secular place. Right? Al's Welding Shop, that's a secular place. If you, if you want to grow in your spiritual walk with God, you've got to understand those categories for believers no longer apply. And here's why. Holy spaces are everywhere that God is. And if you are a believer, 
One of the benefits of being a believer in Jesus Christ is you have God's spirit residing inside of you. And every step you take, you carry the very presence of God with you, making that ground you step on holy. Whether it's a hospital you work in, or a school you work in, or whether you're volunteering at a nonprofit, the minute you walk in, it becomes holy ground. Because you and the very presence of God Himself, not, not just because, oh, I'm a Christian, look at me, I'm holy. No, because the very presence of the Holy God is living inside of you. And so everywhere you go, is a holy opportunity for God to make a difference in a lost and dying world that is desperate for the good news of Jesus Christ. They may not realize it yet, but once they see how you work, once they see how you are loving and caring and compassionate, that same Holy Spirit begins to draw them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you go to work, you're not just going to work to earn a paycheck. You're going to glorify God by working hard, staying out of other people's business. Don't don't be a gossip at work. Don't, Don't be a busybody at work. Love one another at work. So my questions for you this morning are just these two simple questions. Are you loving one another like family? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're a part of this community, are you loving one another like family? Second, are you living quietly? And working hard. Are you living quietly. And working hard. If you're here this morning. You're a guest. You, you're not a part of this family. Or a family of God. I, I want to encourage you. To consider. Being a part of our family. And, and to do that. Means being a believer in Jesus Christ. Accepting the free gift that he has offered to you by sending his son to die for you on a cross. To take the punishment that you deserve, that I deserve, and carrying that himself. Putting your faith in what Jesus has done for you. Receiving the free gift of the Holy Spirit that I was talking about earlier. Following him in baptism. Just as an outward sign of an inward reality. That I'm dying to myself. And I'm rising to a new life with him. I want to encourage you this morning. If you haven't done those things. Please don't put it off. Let's pray. Father.
We thank you for your word. This morning, I thank you for the practicality of your word. And Father, I pray that we would be a church that would be known as a loving family. That the world around us would see an oasis of hope when they come into our building, when they come into our homes. Father, I pray that we would be diligent about our work. And Lord, if your Holy Spirit is convicting us this morning that that we have not been doing what we can do to carry our part of the burden, Lord, just that we would confess this morning. We we would confess that. We would repent of that and leave here and, and begin to do the things that you are calling us to do where wherever our health allows us to to be a good example of the gospel to everyone around us and father i pray for those who are here who don't know you lord that they would put their faith and trust in you this morning